Well, let me read through it first. We're going to read the whole thing, all 12 verses, and then we're going to talk about John's message and where he was going and, and the kind of things that he was trying to get done. So um, this is Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you, and this is John the Baptist speaking, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So we go from sweet baby Jesus to he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire, right? Uh, there's a change in attitude and a change in dynamic in what is happening, and we're kind of making the transition into the, the, uh, Jesus' ministry and message in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, John, as you, can, as you read, is this guy that lives out in the wilderness, uh, and wilderness is an important thing in the biblical narrative. For the people of Israel, the Jewish people who are reading this originally, the wilderness is a place where new things start, right? In a few weeks we'll read about Jesus' time in the wilderness before he begins his public ministry. Uh, the whole nation of Israel left Egypt and spent 40 years in the wilderness becoming a people before they took the promised land or becoming the people God needed them to be uh, in order to for him to give them what he wanted to give them. And uh, he, the wilderness in their culture was this place of new and beginnings and, and something is happening here. And this message of John the Baptist is really just that, that something is happening here. That there was a way that it was and now there is a new way that it is and and it's, John the Baptist becomes this like this link uh, when uh, Matthew quotes Isaiah saying there was a voice crying in the wilderness make straight the path of the Lord he's connecting John the Baptist to the Old Testament saying the whole Old Testament is pointing towards this Messiah is pointing towards Jesus but in the story we don't like John the Baptist doesn't know that it is Jesus later on he actually asks he actually sends a message to Jesus saying hey are you the one like are you the guy uh, you know are, are you the one that I was talking about because John the Baptist knows he's the, the lead in, in a way, to the Messiah. Um, but he also, God hasn't told him, hey, your cousin Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, which would probably, you know, creates an awkwardness and stuff like that. John the Baptist's message would be like, if I, if I grabbed one of your children out of the kids' ministry and said, everybody, this is the Messiah, right? you would say, all right, this guy is wacky, right? And you would not come back to that. You know, that's a weird message. And for these people, this is, a, this is a weird, revolutionary, 
game-changing message. And John the Baptist is out in the wilderness calling to people. Now, wilderness, so you know, uh, it is like basically uninhabitable. There's these weird, like super spiritual communities that would live out there, like the Qumran people and stuff like that, that they just, it wasn't like, um, it wasn't like a campsite or stuff like that, like we have here today. It was about 20 miles from the city of Jerusalem, so it'd be like an all-day walk kind of thing. But it was so hilly and rough that getting into some of their communities would be really difficult. Um, but they would live out there, and this was a common practice that you would go into the wilderness because going into the wilderness was where you went in order to, um, in order to begin new, in order to purify yourself, in order to move into the next things that God had for you. So. Uh, can we go back to the beginning? Uh, this is, here's what John the Baptist says, verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is what he's calling people. This is the main thrust of his message. If, if this is, you know, because we're in a political season, uh, this is kind of his poster. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And just as like a side note, kingdom of heaven, uh, Matthew's gospel is the only place that uses kingdom of heaven. Okay, all the other gospels say kingdom of God. Uh, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, so a lot of people think that he didn't say kingdom of God because Orthodox Jewish people don't use the word God. If you've read like Orthodox Jewish books or papers, they use that G-D instead of using the word God. The kingdom of heaven is completely equivalent, is exactly the same as kingdom of God. And what it's referring to is the places that heaven or God rules. Uh, so when you talk about um, you could be in like a crisis or in a difficult situation but you have like a peace in your heart or in a very difficult time but you have like a joy and an inner kind of thing going on. That's kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. That's God ruling over your heart. What heaven is going to be is that experience everywhere all the time. Like in heaven you will never say, I'm stressed. You'll never say, I don't know how I'm going to get everything done. You'll never say, I'm busy. You'll never say, I'm worried about something. Or never say, like, I, I have all this anxiety. That, that Those feelings are eliminated, all right? Uh, that's what uh, the eternal reign of God is. And so where we bring those things, where we bring things like hope and peace and love and joy into our world, we're actually bringing the kingdom of heaven. We're kind of, it's hard to think of in a territory way because the kingdom of heaven doesn't work in a territory way as much as it works in a Holy Spirit way. That the Spirit of God brings peace and love and joy and hope into situations. And that's actually the literal kingdom of God moving into spaces around you. Alright, so when you bring peace or love into a situation, you're actually bringing the kingdom of heaven into that situation. It's actually an aggressive act of God moving into a situation and, uh, and giving that situation uh, things that are of God and, and only God can provide. And so when John the Baptist is saying to people, repent... Because the reason that they need to repent is because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Meaning, this new thing that is happening, we've done the Old Testament, this new era that Jesus is ushering in is the beginning of the kingdom of heaven. And we live in this era where the kingdom of heaven is establishing itself. And it will eventually be com completely fulfilled uh, at the end when you know Jesus comes back and establishes new heaven and new earth. We read that in Revelation and those kinds of things. Um, but this message is, this is new. And there's a whole new thing that God is doing. And John the Baptist is talking about it. And to be a part of this whole new thing... What you need to do is repent. Now the word repent is a kind of a churchy word. It refers to like a change in your mind. All right, Like uh, I thought about this, I'm turning and I'm changing my mind. But it's not just a change in your mind. It's a change in your mind that affects 
your thinking and affects your actions, okay? Uh, this would be like, because um, we all, you know, you make a mistake or you blow up or you sin, right? Let's say, say you fly off the handle and, and act inappropriately. You go back after where you think about that in your head and you say, uh, I don't like that or I regret doing that. And you go back and you apologize for those things. If you continue to do that, you aren't repentant, all right? You're just sorry, <laughs> which I say as a Canadian. But you're just, I was trying to teach a little a youngster to say sorry. And uh, he's just looking at me like it was weird. And, and then I had to say it like an American. And, and, he, and then he like did the right things. And it was embarrassing for him. But um, I mean, two years old and he can't talk right. But the, uh, so you change your mind. Uh, you change your mind. But if it doesn't change your actions, then we see right through that, right? That's not repentant. When we see repeated behavior, even though you're sorry for something, we call that like you're disturbed or you're messed up or you're broken, okay? That's not repentant. Repentant is uh, the remorse and the turning uh, and the changing your behavior or your actions. And so John the Baptist is actually calling people to a purity of their faith or a purity of their relationship with God that is built on repentance, is built on the understanding of your mistakes and the turning, the thinking about them and turning away from them because the kingdom of heaven is near. And this is his message to the people. Um, now they come out, um, well, well let me say this too. Uh, the way he's dressed has huge like symbolism there because he's dressed like Elijah and if you're into reading and stuff you can google that John the Baptist is kind of connected to Elijah in the Old Testament and he eats the locusts and the honey and those were like prophet food or poor people food all right like those were the allowable um, insects that you could eat and so he would be out there eating locusts and you can go to Israel and they'll give you this tour and they'll be like these plants are called locusts and he was really eating these plants right that's a romantic lie uh, he was eating grasshoppers all right he like somebody isn't nutty and then eats the right things but gives them a funny name no this guy was completely looney tunes and he wore camel hair clothes which was poor people clothes and he ate locusts which was poor people food okay he was like a desert hillbilly that was coming to people and saying listen you need to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand so John the Baptist's movement, you can read in, the, in uh, the book called, it's a book called Antiquities by a guy named Josephus, who is, it's not in the Bible, it's an ancient historical book, but you can read in that. He deals with Jesus and he deals with John the Baptist, and in, for Josephus, John the Baptist is wildly more dangerous than Jesus is. Jesus tried to start, like it apparently, Jesus had these followers, but it never went anywhere, right? Like Jesus died his movement didn't really take off when Josephus wrote his book. John the Baptist's little movement in the desert was politically dangerous to the point that the Herod, the Herod Antipas, who was the Herod the Great's son, uh, who was ruling the area, was actually nervous about it and eventually beheaded him um, at the request of his wife because he said some nasty things, but true things, about Herod's wife. Um, and, and so he is this guy out in the desert who's calling people to repent and people are repenting. Uh, it says that uh, everyone, uh, it says then Jerusalem and all Judea, that's like saying then Albany and the whole valley and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were all being baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. These huge movements of people were going out to see crazy John by the river. 
Because Crazy John by the river had a message that meant something. And something new was happening. And these people were dying for something new. They were in an oppressed state. And they were needing whatever this guy was talking about. And it seemed to be real. And it seemed to make sense. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees come out. This is great. Uh, Verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! <laughs> this is how he greets them. Uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees are um, like this group of people. They would be based in like the local synagogues, okay? And they were a group of people that had extra rules in order to make sure you followed the rules of the Old Testament. Uh, I've talked about this before. If you, um, I went to this conservative college down south and, uh, it, and we uh, weren't allowed screen print on our shirts, alright, in class. So if you had screen print that said, I believe in the virgin birth, uh, you would get, uh, we called it gratis, and that meant you had to go and scrub toilets for the dean or something like this, right? Uh, you would get in trouble for wearing screen print, even if it said like, I love Jesus. Well, you're not allowed to love Jesus on your t-shirt. So, and this is, but they had this rule because what if you accidentally wore an offensive t-shirt, right? So here's the thing. We don't want you to wear a t-shirt that says something offensive. So we're going to put this rule over here. I would have just made it like, you know, guys can't wear shirts at all. You know, that's a way safer. We're not going to make any mistakes here, you know, and, and, uh, but that becomes complicated, right? You can see that. Uh, So, we see this all over the place. There's a rule, and then we're going to make another rule so that you don't get anywhere close to that rule. Or you have safety equipment at work, and then you have safety equipment so you don't touch the safety equipment. And you have, like, safety stuff so that you don't touch the safety stuff, and you have to go to classes to make sure that you don't do anything, right? Uh, and, and, and we do this. Religion, or Christianity, has mastered this. Uh, we have just... Uh, there are... Uh, just these inane rules that are, have been set up by what we call religious institutions in order to protect people uh, and keep them from thinking. The Pharisees were right into that. And they worked in local areas. And, so they, and they were good at it. Like Pharisees didn't sin. All right? Because they didn't break their rules, which were miles from the actual rules. Okay? Now, Sadducees, uh, same kind of deal. Extreme legalism, extreme following of the law, except they were based in the temple in Jerusalem, and they were cooperative with the Roman rulers. Okay? And Pharisees and Sadducees are going to show up over and over. Most of them are just good guys, but they're following something which was incorrect and actually harmful to people. The Sadducees tended to be really wealthy uh, because they would follow their law, but they would cooperate with the Romans too. Uh, And so they got on the Roman side so that they could make a lot of money uh, by being, you know, a religious leader and stuff like that. That doesn't happen on TV today, right? Uh, And this is what they would do and, and the direction that they would go. So the religious power and the religious authority comes out to John, and John's trying to start a movement. This is fantastic, right? If you're trying to start a movement, those in control of the power want to join your movement, this is good. John should be thankful for the endorsement from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And how does he greet them? He says, welcome, you brood of vipers. Okay? Now, that's not really insulting to us. Um, But this would be uh, about as insulting as you can get. Uh, There aren't too many more insulting things that appear in the scripture than this. A viper in their culture was like these little snakes that they kind of, they're subtle movements and so you didn't see them until they bit you. And most of them were lethal. And so you didn't see them and then you were dead. And so when he welcomes the religious leaders with their endorsement, he says, hey, welcome people who are killing people without them knowing it. Right? 
this isn't how you greet the people. Uh, John goes after the religious leaders in his day. In an, in, like, this would be a dangerous thing for him to say. You can see why John had his head cut off later in his life, right? He would just throw these things out uh, and announce these things. And the reason that he went after them, uh, he goes after them, he says, You brood of viper, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And he warns them because the problem in their life is not their legalism or is not their, the rules that they're set up. Rules aren't necessarily a bad thing, right? <laughs> they're not. The safety equipment from the safety equipment from the safety equipment keeps you from cutting your arm off, right? But what they were doing was depending on the rules that they had set up. And they had no repentance in what they were doing. John tells them, you need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And we think about repentance, what is the fruit that comes along with repentance? When we think about repentance, we think of remorse, right? We think of uh, regret. We think of humility. When you're repentant, when you have to go and apologize, that's a humbling thing. When you sit down with someone you're close to and actually have to apologize for real. Um, dependence, because you're dependent on that other person's reaction to your apology. Um, there's a restoration, being restored based on someone else. Um, that's part of repentance and then continued obedience, right? Moving back into, a, into an actual relationship. A person who is repentant in terms of God displays remorse for their sin against God, humility because of who they are and who God is, a dependence on God for His grace and His forgiveness, His restoration, and then they display a continued obedience. And that is what the Christian life is. We obey we tend to mess it up, we repent, and God restores it. We obey, we mess it up, we repent, and God restores it. Uh, that's what it means to be a Christian. And, and when John the Baptist looks at this group of guys who come in, they're based on, they don't display remorse. They don't display dependence on God. They display dependence on themselves and being able to follow the rules. Because they're able to follow the rules, they think that they should be the leaders of the community. I have more rules than you. My rules are better than you. Uh, therefore, uh, I don't need to be the kind of person you are. You're dependent on Jesus. I'm not because I don't sin. You know, I don't sin, therefore, why bother having Jesus die on the cross? We don't say this out loud, right? Um, you certainly don't say this out loud. Um, but ourselves deceive ourselves into thinking this that I'm pretty good. You know, like I'm, I'm, I'm a covenant member at the Grove, right? Like I do things. I pray. I read my Bible. And we set up this religion that we follow. Uh, you probably, if you're connected to the internet, uh, you've seen that anti-religion video this week by that young guy that hates religion. It's kind of fun. Uh, it's fun, but at the same time, it's kind of funny because we all hate religion, but we're all like, we're the religious people because you're all here in a room at the same time. That's religious, right? If you weren't religious, you wouldn't all show up in the same room at the same time, right? Because you're, you would actually show up somewhere else or you show up at random places because you're not religious. Well, you wouldn't show up at all because the act of showing up is a ritual, right? So you would just nebulously go through life like, ooh, I follow Jesus, right? So, and we have people like that, right? And, but they have a religion that's based on mushrooms. Um, so we have, there is, uh, so they, we have this, uh, it, religion isn't the problem, it's a dependence on religion that is the problem, right? Religion, if it's our expression to God of our love and dependent on God, isn't a problem. 
But as soon as religion becomes the thing that we depend on, I am good because I'm religious, or I am good because of this, this, and this, and it's any answer besides Jesus, you've got the same problem that the Pharisees and Sadducees have. All right? And when uh, John the Baptist refers to them, uh, he actually, this is what he goes with. And do not presume to yourselves, uh, sorry, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. All right? Uh, so he points them, they point themselves to this, uh, we're the children of Abraham, meaning we're the Jewish people. And God had made certain promises to the Jewish people. There would always be Jewish people on earth. They would be numerous, like sand on the shore of the ocean. They, there would be that many children of Abraham, all right? Uh, the children of Abraham would be blessed by God. The people that they bless, the people that bless them, God will bless. They had these promises. And a lot of times, Christians, we fall into this too. Where we say, well, God has made promises to me because I am a Christian. And so because I am a Christian, God has to do this, 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 and this. Right? When John the Baptist says, is, you are wrong in assuming that God needs to fulfill his promise through you. Like, God has promised that there would be children of Abraham. And so the Pharisees and Sadducees are saying, there will be. And it will be our descendants. And John the Baptist is saying, you're assuming that God has to work through your reproduction. But if he wanted to, God could take these rocks and turn them into children of Abraham. And he honestly could. As soon as you think that God needs you, you're in a ton of trouble. Because God doesn't need you. Whatever God's plan is for your life, he could do with a rock. Right? So in God's economy, where do you stand? <laughs> right? You're probably not even a big rock. <laughs> right? <laughs> Some of us are, because we're kind of hard. But uh, there's that... Uh, it's really kind of fun. In the original language, in Hebrew and in Aramaic, which John would have been speaking one of those, the word rock and the word children are almost the same. Uh, the word rock, I want to say this right. Uh, the word rock is uh, banim, B-A-N-I-M. And the word children is abanim. But the A is almost silent, where it's A-B-A-N-I-M. That's in Hebrew. The Aramaic is almost the exact same. And so he's actually, it, it would sound more like God can make Rocky out of rocks. God doesn't need Sylvester Stallone to make Rocky. All right? God can do, it would be like that kind of a play on words. And so he's almost sarcastically insulting these guys and saying, yeah, you're children, but you're just as good as rocks. God needs you the way he needs a little, like the way he needs some gravel. Okay, uh, that's the kind of attitude that they had that God needs them. And John the Baptist's message is, yes, God needs you a lot. Like he needs an, another stone. Okay, uh, this is religious dependence. Uh, so John the Baptist starts pushing on them and they start having this. And this is what, um, this is where he pushes. John the Baptist says this, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Then, skip a verse, he says, His, meaning the Messiah's, winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, and the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. If you're reading this through, seriously, 30 seconds ago, you were dealing with nice baby Jesus. And now stuff is being thrown into unquenchable fire? Well, this is a huge, aggressive turn. Where we have this nice Jesus, well, we like Jesus, I want Jesus to be my buddy, I want Jesus to be my friend, and all of a sudden Jesus is throwing stuff into a fire, like what's, Jesus is off the handle. This Messiah guy is a little bit out of control. 
If you're a tree and you're bearing bad fruit, fruit that's not in turn with repentance, the axe is already at the base of that tree. Meaning Jesus has come not to be nice to you. Write this down. Jesus did not come to earth to be nice to you. He came to judge you. All right? And I know being judgmental is wrong. Yeah. Tell that to Jesus. Because as he cuts you down and throws you in the fire. All right? Uh, don't write that down. Uh, but there is, uh, there is this kind of, um, we want Jesus to be this nice guy who helps us. And what Jesus is doing is radically aggressive. His, the axe is at the tree. And it's just evaluating the fruit right now. What is this tree producing? Uh, the winnowing, a winnowing fork, so you know, they would get all of their harvest onto this big threshing floor. And the winnowing fork would sometimes be a shovel or a fan, depending on your translation, but actually throw it up in the air. After they had beat it a bunch, they'd throw it up in the air, and the chaff or the like skin shell stuff would float away because of the wind, and the heavy stuff would land back down. The heavy stuff you would keep and you'd put it in the barn. It was useful. The chaff, you'd go over there, you'd sweep it together, you'd light it on fire to get rid of it. And so if you want to know what the Messiah is doing, the Messiah is throwing the harvest up in the air to see what's useful and what's not. And that which isn't, we're going to throw into the unquenchable fire. Where did nice baby Jesus go? Where did this love message go? In Philippians 3, uh, verse 17 and 18, it actually talks about unrepentant sinners. People who are repentant are like the wheat. They're like a tree that bears good fruit. People that are unrepentant are like a tree that bears bad fruit. They're like the chaff that blows away. Philippians 3, 17 and 18 actually refers to people who are unrepentant as enemies of the cross. Alright? We like to say Jesus loves everyone, but when Jesus looks at the people of God, when Jesus looks at the Christians, he sees repentant and he sees unrepentant. And he acts in mercy and love towards the repentant. And he actually hates the unrepentant. If we sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, we should check first. Are you repentant? Right? I sing that to my daughter every night. And now we're going to have a new little conversation. <laughs> Are you repentant? Because if not, Jesus doesn't love you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we're going to put that on the new Grove logo. The Grove, Jesus probably doesn't love you, right? <laughs> and I understand Jesus loves you. Jesus died on the cross for all mankind, you know? And so I understand Jesus loves you. But the wrath of God will be poured out for all eternity on the people who are unrepentant. And that's the message of John the Baptist. And that's the message of Jesus. Jesus loves you like a crazy person. Jesus loves you enough to die on the cross for you, all right? Jesus took the entire wrath of God upon himself. But if you are unrepentant, what you are saying is, I want to take that wrath myself. I don't want Jesus to take my wrath that I deserve for my sin and my offense against God. I want to take that myself. I don't need Jesus. I want to take that. And Jesus will literally pour the wrath of God out on people. This is what we talk about when we use words like unquenchable fire all of a sudden this got serious we were talking about nice sweet baby Jesus learning to walk Jesus going on a road trip with mom and dad the wise men coming and bringing him presents and now the wrath of God is being poured out on people through the person of Jesus ouch 
like cool it John the Baptist like the viper thing was offensive but this goes a little too far and so we have to respond in obedience and repentance obedience and repentance over and over and over again this is the path of the person who follows Jesus in between those two warnings the the trees going in the fire and the chaff going in the fire there's this little verse verse 11 it says I baptize you this is John the Baptist I baptize you with water for repentance meaning John's baptism was in water and had to do with repentance but he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire the baptism of Jesus is referred to as the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire fire being a purifying baptism meaning Jesus will purify you meaning people who follow Jesus when you turn to Jesus and you put your full faith and trust in him and you seek forgiveness of your sins through him the, Jesus actually purifies you uh, this is an incredible thing you're able to enter God's throne when you worship you're able to, your worship is heard in heaven because Jesus has purified you a regular old sinning person can't enter into the presence of God they'll die right yeah, impure can't be with the ultimate purity it would be eliminated because it would destroy the purity but we're able to enter into God's presence because of the purity that Jesus in, just imparts to us and so Jesus takes this fire and purifies us but then also gives us the Holy Spirit the gift of the Holy Spirit is given to the people who follow Jesus who are repentant and this gift of the Holy Spirit is what enables you to be able to obey and to follow if we were to try to do this on our own like if I was to try to just follow Jesus if I was to set up rules and set up rules outside those rules and rules outside those rules that's going to crumble I mean do you really trust yourself to be the lone judge of yourself most of us know ourselves well enough to know that we need the help of others to be the person that we want to be we have relationships with people and people that we trust that we let speak into our lives we read the scriptures and we ask the scriptures to speak into our lives it is a sad person who lives isolated by themselves because they think alone they can become who the ultimate who they are we exist in a network and that ultimate network if you if I can put it this way is the Trinity of God entering into us through the person of the Holy Spirit you're able to obey not because you're working hard enough but because the Holy Spirit empowers you to be able to obey and when you try to do this on your own when you try to follow God on your own when you deviate away from what the Holy Spirit is leading you in that's when repentance becomes necessary repentance becomes necessary in order to turn back to the Holy Spirit in order to renew your relationship with God we go through these wilderness experiences in order to return and obey again and John refers to this guy coming up like this I mean if you want to talk about someone who's repentant in this story it's John the Baptist right John the Baptist is humble he's wearing poor people clothes he's eating poor people food he, he's living in the wilderness it's crazy John by the river he's got nothing to be proud about alright 
And when he talks about Jesus, when he talks about the Messiah, he says, there's one coming after me who is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not even worthy to carry. If you have your own Bible, some of them say, I'm not worthy to loosen his sandals. And dealing with the feet was the, was the job for the servant in the household who was um, either, like maybe the ugliest or um, the least able or the dumbest. Uh, a lot of times like mentally or physically challenged or handicapped people would be given that role. Sit by the door. If someone comes in, take their sandals off for them. Because your feet would be filthy because they didn't have cars. They walked everywhere, right? No pavement. You were walking the same road that the animals walked. It was awful. This is why when Jesus went to wash the disciples' feet, the only person who responded correctly was Peter. When Peter said, no, you're not washing my feet, the other disciples were dummies. They were letting Jesus take on the role of the lowest servant in the house. If you came to my house, there is no chance I'm letting you take out my, tr- my trash, right? I don't let my wife take out the garbage. This is, that's a, a low job. Taking garbage, that's a low job. And so I take that job. People don't get to come and serve me in that way. If you came to my house and said, James, whenever your garbage is full, I want you to call me. I'm going to come and empty it. I'm never calling you, right? I'm not. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be that guy. And yet when Jesus goes to wash the disciples' feet, all but one is like, all right. What? (laughs) If Jesus came to your house, would you say, hey Jesus, I know you've got a lot going on, but could you take the trash out? There's no chance you'd say that, right? And so when John refers to Jesus, he says, the one coming after me is mightier than I. I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals. Meaning, If you look at the dumbest, ugliest, least able follower of Jesus there is, I'm right below that. John the Baptist, right below that. The guy who ushered in the Messiah, right below the least able follower of Jesus. When um, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he was writing the New Testament, and he was trusted with writing most of the New Testament, he refers to himself at one point as the chief of sinners. He calls himself the chief of the sinners. Like, I'm the worst of all the sinners. And when you look around the room, you can probably find, well, maybe, uh, look around your family, look around the room, look around the people you know, you can find Christians that aren't as Christian as you, right? Like people who love Jesus and all, but nah, they're ugly people on the inside. And you know them. Don't don't point. Um, I'm just kidding. Nobody over there pointed. (laughs) But... But you know this, right? And we don't like admit it. We don't like to say it. But we get a little bit of like good feeling knowing we're not the worst person in the room. And if John the Baptist was here, if Paul was here, they would look around and be like, I am the worst person in this room. If you want to know what a repentant heart looks like versus an unrepentant heart, an unrepentant heart hears this, what we're talking about today, and identifies people in their mind who they're glad are here to hear this message. Or people who are like, oh, I need to tell this person to listen to this on the podcast later because this will really help them. That's revealing an unrepentant heart. If you hear the word of God and it makes you think, I might be the worst follower of Jesus in the history of the world, you might be on to what repentance is. You might be on to this. Now, this is really difficult in a church like ours. Uh, our church is just lit up. Like, God is doing things in our church that are nuts, all right? Like, completely, 
things that should not be happening in a church plant are happening. Okay? Uh, people call us and they're like, hey, we want to know how to do it like you do it because you're so awesome. Right? And as soon as we think, yes, we are, <laughs> we've got an unrepentant heart. And seriously, uh, there are a lot of churches that are next to dead in our area. Like next to dead. Churches that have nothing to do with Jesus, right? Churches that haven't told someone the gospel in 10, 20 years. And when we look at them, we can say, I'm better than them. Or we can say, I would put us right below them. Right below them. The greatest theologian in the history of the church, his name is Augustine. And Augustine once said, when he looks at someone who's a sinner... He looks at someone who's falling into the trap of the devil. He says, but by the grace of God, there go I. And they talked funny when he was alive. But he says, basically, but by God's grace, that's me. The person who falls, the person who does the most disgusting sin that you can possibly think of, but by the grace of God, that's me. And that's you. And that's us. The only thing that makes anything special it's God's working and God's moving. And it doesn't matter, like you might be someone who people look at you and you're like, and you look like you have it together and the outside is, it's bang on. But when John the Baptist is bringing this message of the Messiah, he's saying it might look great on the outside, but if you don't have the fruit of repentance, which is an inner fruit, there's no outward sign of repentance. It's an inner thing. If you don't have that, then it wrecks the whole thing. Every year at Christmas, I buy apples for my kids. This is what happened in my family growing up, and we buy apples and jam them into the stocking. I don't know why, um, but this is how I grew up. Everyone in my family thinks it's stupid, so I end up with four apples every Christmas. Um, but I love it. And so <laughs> this year, I'm eating my apples, and, uh, uh, and I'm eating it, and they get to the middle of my apple, and my apple's rotten in the middle, like gross, Right? And so I immediately go to the garbage can and try to induce vomiting and just... But it, that kind of grosses me out, so I can't do it either, right? Because it's like, which is grosser, rotten apple or vomit, right? And uh, so I'm trying to spit this stuff out. And it, it didn't just like ruin the little bit that I bit off that was bad from the middle. It ruined the whole apple. Like I wanted to know what creature was living inside my apple that is now probably living inside me, right? And I'm like drinking lots of acidic stuff to kill that thing, right? And, uh, and you are probably not as obsessive as I am, but you hit a bad part and it ruins the whole thing. You make an omelet and you put five good eggs and one bad egg in it, the whole thing sucks. Uh, this is kind of like what obedience and repentance looks like. You might have it all together awesome on the outside. But if your heart grows into pride and doesn't display the fruit of repentance, you're actually in danger of the axe, which is at the base of the tree. You're in danger of being the chaff that floats away and is going to be burned. This isn't a message for the non-Christians. This is a message for the Christian people. When Jesus came to earth, he came to save the Christians. When Jesus came, this message from John the Baptist is delivered to the religious people. It's not delivered to the people who don't know anything about God. That's a whole different message. That message is, I love you. The message for the religious people is, if you're unrepentant, I will hate you forever. 
in the way of God's wrath being poured out on you for all eternity. I want to close it now. And this is how we're going to close. Um, because I, it would be terrible if we all got up and went, that was the best message on repentance I ever heard. Right on. Let's go home. Right? Because in doing that, you would be responding in a religious way. And to talk about this and not do something about this is exactly the thing that this is preaching against. That's the exact opposite of what I'm saying. And so I'm not going to close us in prayer, but I'm going to give you the chance to pray by yourself. The band will come up and play for a little bit just so there's some music so it won't be as distracting for you. And, and then we'll sing together. But I want to give us some space here that maybe repentance is something that needs to be a part of your life. Falling into unrepentance is the easiest thing in the world. Especially for people like us who live where we are, who we can depend on ourselves pretty good. Falling into unrepentance is, is just wildly dangerous to the point that if you're going to pray in the next few minutes, I would begin my prayer by asking Jesus to reveal to you where you're unrepentant and where you need to seek forgiveness. Because I don't trust my own self. And the Apostle Paul wrote this as well. That he doesn't trust his own self to know his own self. Because my own self wants to deceive myself into thinking it's just fine. And so we pray to Jesus and we ask Jesus to reveal in our hearts where are we hard? Where are we prideful? Where do we need to repent? And Jesus will bring those to us and the Holy Spirit will bring those to us. Because the first steps of repentance is that remorse for being who we are and that humility of knowing who Jesus is in comparison with us. So I'm not going to lead us in prayer, but this is our prayer time for yourself.